a lot of people very much focus on anger, frustration, fear, anxiety. We have to move the dial away from that because that doesn't get you anywhere. Anger doesn't get you anywhere. Hello friends and welcome to episode two of Undaunted with Robert Swan and NTT Data. In episode one, we heard Robert's story about walking to the North and South Poles. And it sounds almost casual to say, Robert Swan walked to the North and South Poles, like it was a stroll to the corner store. Which would be true if the corner store was 900 miles away, the weather was 50 below, and a frozen wind blistered your face as you pulled a 360 pound sled behind you. In truth, these were excruciating experiences, and I'm not sure I would have survived it. Lots of people did not when they tried. But don't take my word for it. Today, I'm excited to say Robert Swan is in the house, live and in person. He's taking a break from training for his next expedition called Undaunted South Pole 2023. You may recall that over three previous expeditions, Robert has walked across almost all of the Antarctic landmass, more than 1,400 miles combined. With Undaunted, he's going back to cover the last 97 miles he needs to connect all of the dots from one side of Antarctica to the other on foot. Please welcome Robert Swan. Well, thank you and thanks to everybody in NTT Data listening because without your hard work, we could not be undertaking our expedition at the end of this year, undaunted to the South Pole. Well, we're honored to be partnering with you on the Undaunted Expedition and supporting the 2041 Foundation. Robert, let's jump right in. What are you trying to accomplish with the Undaunted Expedition? Well, this is the end of a 34-year mission. When I was a young man, I read the stories of the great British explorer Ernest Shackleton, whose intention was to cross the whole of the Antarctic continent. But as some people listening might have heard recently, they found his ship, the Endurance, which was crushed by ice, and he never, with his team, got the chance to start the crossing of the Antarctic landmass. So this is Rob Swan and team's completion of that mission. It's taken many, many years. I've had many, many setbacks, but we said we were going to do it. And my son Barney and I are returning at the end of December, beginning of January, to complete the last 97 miles, which is out of 1,461 miles, I think, that I've done already to cross the Antarctic landmass. And after injuries, setbacks, etc., I'm going back with Barney to finish those last 97 miles to the South Pole. And I think after all the efforts, after all the years, I think we can justifiably call this expedition undaunted. Why do you say undaunted? You've had a couple of previous attempts at finishing the distance. What happened on those previous attempts? Well, being the first person in history to walk to both poles, I thought that I could easily complete the last 600 nautical miles to the South Pole. And Barney and I started that journey with two fantastic companions. And I really thought I could do it. And I underestimated my age, 
my fitness, my mental preparation. But after 300 miles out of those 600 miles, my left hip disintegrated. The real hip I had for all those 61 years disintegrated as I was walking. I was beginning to slow down Barney and the team and I had to pull out, which was a very, very big moment for me as, as a failure. I felt I'd let down Barney, he was 23, he'd never done anything like that before, and I felt I'd let down my supporters, let down myself, and I had faced failure in nearly every part of my life, but I'd never failed to get to the pole when I said I was gonna get there. So those 300 miles were still to be done. Barney, of course, on the South Pole Energy Challenge, which was the name of the expedition, reached the pole and completed that mission, which was fantastic. But those 300 miles were in the back of my mind. And to be quite honest with you, Dan, you know, I, I look at a map of Antarctica every day of my life. So I wasn't gonna look at a map and think there were still 300 miles to go to the pole. So we went back on what we call the last 300 at the end of 2019 with a brand new hip installed, a fantastic team led by two of the great polar explorers, Johanna and Katinka, two very strong women who would lead me to the pole and get us there and got 97 miles from the pole. And I took my focus off I thought, we're there, I started thinking about going home, got out of the tent one morning, fell over on a piece of ice, and my brand new hip that had done so well for over 200 miles blew out of its socket. And I was left lying again in the snow, having failed twice to do something I was meant to be the best in the world at doing. So this was not the best day of my life, to be honest with you and got back home, COVID hit, got a bit down in the dumps really about everything and thought, no, Rob, you said you were gonna do this and you are going to do it. So I had a new hip installed, number two, and everything's looking good, going back to complete that mission. 97 nautical miles doesn't sound much, but it's a big journey that lies ahead I'll be 66 years of age and really somebody of my age shouldn't really be doing these things, but supported by Barney, father and son together, we're gonna to go back and finish those miles to the pole because bottom line is, in a world where often words are cheap and people don't deliver on what they say they're gonna do, we intend to do that. We're gonna complete that journey mm -hmm. because we said we were going to do it. What has your training regimen been? And is it different now at the age you are than the training regimen that you took for Footsteps of Scott or the Ice Walk to the North Pole? Absolutely. Hugely different because you can't really run with a brand new hip anymore. So there's been a, a lot of cycling and inspired by Barney, which I've never done enough of, a lot of stretching, which is hugely important for doing this. So a lot of cycling, a lot of stretching, and quite a lot of core work to get it strong. So we've changed the game. You can't just put on a back 
packed full of rocks and run up a hill anymore like we used to in the old days. Now it's slightly more strategic and Barney and I have also been thinking about our diet, making some changes in that. I think what's important with journeys that you don't do what you used to do just because it worked or didn't work. You change the game, you make some innovations and we're ready to rumble at the end of December this year. Speaking of diet, I, I know that in, in Footsteps of Scott, you had a remarkable diet, shall we say. 80 days worth of military biscuits. Now, that just sounds delicious to me. And uh, pepperoni, but you'd also had some Cadbury chocolate, and you melted half sticks of butter into your daily soup. What's the menu for Undaunted? Well, it, we're trying to go as plant-based as possible, because let's not forget that yeah, we shouldn't be eating meat every day. You know, one should cut back on that because, you know, that is one big part of climate change and creating... We want to try and create something where we're showing that we need a lot of firepower, six, 7,000 calories a day, and we need that energy to make this journey. So is it possible for us to do that more plant-based and stay alive, I think is a good way of trying to show people that, that anything's possible and on a good diet. So really, it's much better than it used to be. Porridge with all kinds of protein mix in it to begin with. During the day, you have chocolate, you have nuts, you have raisins, you have all kinds of sort of energy stuff during the day. And then in the evening, a kind of dehydrated food which you know again it has to be done just with hot water you can't be there sort of cooking and again with lots of energy but trying to make everything our snacks everything as plant-based and as best we possibly can towards showing some leadership on what we out there in in the middle of the antarctic at minus 40. <laughs> is that minus 40 fahrenheit or they're, or both, it, they're it, both the same they're both Jan, the same, both the degrees, same. Yeah. they they join at minus 40, both Celsius okay. and Fahrenheit. How does the reality of Antarctica compare to what you perceived about the continent when you first saw that movie in the footsteps of Scott when you were 11 years old? Well, Antarctica, it wants you dead from the day you get there until the day you come out. It looks beautiful, but it's a dangerous, harsh, the coldest, windiest, highest continent on the planet. And one must never forget that. It's the reality of what you see on the edge of Antarctica when you go there on a ship, compared to what it's like at the South Geographic Pole is an entirely separate universe. The middle of Antarctica is at 10,000 feet above sea level and it's a very, very hard, rough place to go into. And for Undaunted, we'll be flying into that altitude. Hence, I'm spending plenty of time now training at altitude, because the older you get, the weaker your lungs get. So I'm trying to get my lungs as strong as possible before we actually fly in there. Barney being young, he probably won't notice it. But it's like a reality check, really. You read the stories about Scott and Shackleton and Amundsen and you have this picture in your mind. But the reality of the place, especially when you're pulling a sledge nine hours a day, seven days a week for 70 days, the reality of it 
is not quite so romantic as what one thought it would be. It's a hard, cruel, tough place to be in and one must never forget that. When I got 97 miles from the pole on the last 300 and my hip popped out, I forgot it. I didn't keep my focus and without focus you can make mistakes and that mistake cost me an awful lot. But in many ways, you know something? I feel a better and stronger person for having failed twice on something I was supposed to be able to do very easily. I've learned a lot from that. You talk about how Antarctica is brutal but beautiful at the same time. Mm. What are the different zones, perhaps you call it? I know that there's mm. West Antarctica and there's East Antarctica. They're divided by the Transantarctic Mountains. On your walks, you went across ice fields, you went across glaciers, and then the Antarctic Plateau. What are those zones like, and are there other zones that I've missed? On the edge of Antarctica, it's where all the wildlife is. There's nothing one mile in from the edge of the Antarctic. There is nothing. On the edge, on the coastline, it, it has possibly, you know, the more, more wildlife than you'd ever imagine with the seals, whales, birds, everything. It's fantastic. One mile in, it's the dead zone. But the first part of any journey you make in Antarctica is across ice shelves so you're at sea level on a giant ice shelf maybe 1500 feet thick of ice but you're floating on the ocean and it's level then when you come to the great mountains which you have to cross you go up from sea level to about 10,000 feet above sea level up through the great glaciers and that's where that zone is where the crevasses are and crevasses are deep trenches in the ice because the ice comes downhill and it breaks and creates all these these holes and that's a bit of a, a hard section going through the mountains and then the polar plateau is windy and the wind annoyingly anybody's listening who's ever ridden a bicycle knows the difference between riding a bicycle into the wind or the heaven of riding a bicycle with the wind behind you because the wind all comes from the South Pole, you're always walking into the wind when you're walking to the South Pole. So it's windy, it's rough, it's quite level, but it's another zone entirely. And the altitude is a big problem because of where you are on the planet. It may be at 10,000 feet on some altimeter, but on your body, that altitude can go way up to 16,000 feet because of the ionosphere and the fact the world is squashed there at the South Pole and it causes all kinds of problems with altitude. So on one day you could be at 10,000 feet, 14,000 feet, up to 16,000 feet on your body, get to the end of the day and you're back to 10,000. It's very variable on how with the impact of altitude on you. I know that indigenous peoples of the Arctic have many different words for snow, dozens if not hundreds of words for yeah. different kinds of snow. In your experience in Antarctica, did you come to define different kinds of ice? <laughs> and did you develop nicknames for them? Or, or do you have words for different kinds of ice? 
Yeah, it's a very good question. You battle hard with different surfaces. And what's extraordinary, absolutely extraordinary, is how we have experienced climate change in ice surfaces over the last 30 years. We now, when we're even at near the South Pole, the surfaces have changed since what we used to have 30 years ago. Because it, although it's still very, very cold, there are periods where it's perhaps a little bit warmer. And when you get a little bit of a warm spell on the Antarctic plateau, you get these crystals that form a little layer. So Barney and I can be walking along, pulling our sled, and then suddenly, bang, the ice goes down maybe three or four inches, five inches, it collapses in on itself, which never, ever, ever used to happen to us 30 years ago, 20 years ago, even 10 years ago when we were out there. And although it gives you a shock, because you think you've fallen down a crevasse, even though you've gone six inches, the sled goes down and your skis go down. And that's fine if it just happens once, but if it's happening you know, a lot, it's a huge effort to then pull yourself out of that collapsed little area of snow. Never used to happen, happens a lot now. Although it gives you a shock, it's also extra exhausting. And that is something we put down totally, even at the South Pole, where the average yearly temperature is minus 56. It's, it's happening there and one has experienced that. So <clears throat> yeah, we have lots of different names for snow, but not I don't think quite as elegant as possibly the Inuit people have their names for snow. It can be sort of one swear word or another swear word or perhaps, wow, this is feeling good today. Um, normally, you can have all kinds of different stuff. And the colder it gets, the more that snow becomes like sand. So this happened to Scott, Amundsen and Shackleton. As you get closer to the pole, your sled, which is supposed to have got lighter, starts to feel heavier because you've got a sandy surface to pull through. And that is simply because in really cold conditions, the snow turns to kind of more like sand than you would imagine snow to be. The changes are happening at both poles, actually. Is it even possible to walk to the North Pole? Well, it's quite an extraordinary thing that 30 years ago, when we went to the North Pole, the ice cap melted beneath our feet. And this is way before climate change, global warming, any of those words were used. And we had to fight our way through ice breaking up and we're nearly all drowned, but we made it to the pole. And 30 years on, you can no longer walk to the North Pole during the summer months when it's daylight, because there is not enough ice to stand on. And that's fact. And isn't that extraordinary that that's happened in 30 years? And it's a shock to people. And once the ocean that is white, when that melts, it no longer reflects the light back up or the heat back up from the sun. So once you've got ocean, the ocean now is warming up even faster because it doesn't have a coating of ice over it to reflect back the heat from the sun. So 
it's sort of it's compounding itself in the Arctic. So Icewalk, the expedition to the North Pole, marked the completion of your childhood dream. But somewhere along the way, you switched from I want to accomplish this commitment to I want to save Antarctica. How did that shift happen? What was the driving force behind that? Two things that happened on the, the South Pole and then the North Pole journeys that kind of changed my view on things. Because I'd never really thought about the environment and I'd never really thought about the planet. I just wanted to get to both poles. You know, it went down well with girls at parties. I'd read the history of Scott Shackleton and Amundsen. I was up for it. But on the way to the South Pole, we walked under a hole in the ozone layer and our eyes got burnt out and our faces fried off. And then the North Pole, the ice caps melted. So suddenly I was touching some of the things that were happening to our planet that no one was really discussing or no one was really focused on 30 years ago. And I thought to myself, well, what can I do as a young person? You know, I was a bit feeling like, well, what can I do? And I thought most importantly, it was important to be positive about those issues. This was the time when, you know, environmental organisations were being extremely negative, maybe to get attention, but I didn't really want to become part of that. And I was feeling a bit down in the dumps. I didn't really know what to do. And along came Jacques Cousteau, who'd been our patron for the South Pole and the North Pole expeditions. And he said, right, Rob, you've got to help preserve Antarctica. And I thought, well, does it need preserving? I didn't know anything about it. And he explained to me about the treaty that protects Antarctica coming up for review in the year 2041. You've got to remember, this is a long time ago. This is 31 years ago when he gave me this mission to be part of helping preserve Antarctica. So I thought to myself, great, now I've got a new mission. Some people listening would understand this, that if you achieve a goal, your lifetime's mission to walk to both poles and you do it, then after it, you feel a bit lost, you feel a bit empty, you don't really know what to do with your life. So Jacques Cousteau giving us, because it is us, all of us together, this idea of leaving Antarctica as a natural reserve land for science and peace, that became the mission. And I grasped hold of that, you know, maybe to save my brain as much as anything else. And that's been going on for 31 years. And we've got 19 years to go and we're going to make sure we preserve Antarctica. And there's lots of things that my son Barney and I have done and we will continue to do to help preserve Antarctica. But during those 31 years, Dan, up came an entirely different issue. And that was the survival of us as a species on this planet. So there, there has been me been working on preserving Antarctica just focused on that and then suddenly realized my goodness these places are going to come and get us if we continue to melt the arctic melt the antarctic you know sea levels going to rise and we're all going to be swimming so suddenly my little focus just on antarctica changed keep that going 
but what could we do on inspiring people on solutions here in the real world? And surprisingly, one thing came out of that, and that is that if we are using more clean renewable energy here in the real world, no one is going to go and exploit Antarctica, and we as a species might survive here, you know, on the planet. And that's where Barney came into the story, where things really moved on. But it began almost as a life-saving thing for me. Thank goodness Jacques Cousteau gave us me a mission, so I didn't lose my mind, because I was very lost without that entire focus on walking to the poles. Right. In pursuit of that mission from Jacques Cousteau, what are some of the things that you've done? And this ranges from, I know that you've spoken at consecutive global summits, mm-hmm. and you've spoken to presidents, you've spoken to elementary school students. What are some of the, the, the other things that you've done to call attention to the need for action on climate change? Well, I think that it's got to keep linked to the main mission, which is Antarctica. It's got to be something that you don't get end up with two separate things. So the things that we've done are to say, okay, let's go around the world with a yacht showing people how renewable energy works and inspire people to use more renewable energy at scale. You know, Barney and I have tested renewable energy literally in the most extreme environments on the planet at the South Pole, got it to work. We've worked with NASA. So there's been a huge effort on renewable energy which is something relevant to climate change here in the real world, but also it's relevant to the preservation of Antarctica because if we're using more of it, no one's going to go and exploit Antarctica in 2041. So that's one thing. The second thing is that we've tried our very, very best to inspire young people because really in 19 years' time, you know, if a 10-year-old today is going to be 30. So we've got a big focus on inspiring youth to know about Antarctica, but at the same time doing some things in their lives and being inspired to do things in their lives on today, on what they're doing at home, what they're doing at school, what they're doing obviously as employees in companies. So we've tried very, very hard to link those two things together the preservation of Antarctica and, you know, our survival on the planet as far as climate change. And I think it's quite an interesting link that what Barney, my son, is doing in Australia, restoring part of the oldest rainforest on the planet. Guess what? There were trees growing where Barney's restoring the rainforest. There were trees growing there when there were trees growing in Antarctica. So we've tried to keep a good link between those two things as best, as best we possibly can. Tell us about the trees growing in Antarctica. That's when it was part of a supercontinent, not positioned where it is now, is that correct? Well, there's a lot of interesting theories going on about the speed of climate change or how things changed in Antarctica. You know, what we're talking about is probably 90 million years ago that there were trees growing in Antarctica. People now are working on how quickly the Antarctic ice of, you know, at the South Pole, remember, it's the ice is 
nearly 16,000 feet thick. So there's a lot of ice there. But scientists are saying, well, how quickly did that all come? But at some stage, we know clearly there were trees growing in Antarctica. The fossils are there. I've seen them. Do you think Antarctica is becoming real to people? And the reason I ask that is I remember in school and you learn about the seven continents and, oh yeah, Antarctica. It's an impossible dream. It's way down there. But now it's becoming real. You can travel there and it's also becoming more important. What is it about Antarctica that captures someone's imagination? Well, I think the fact that all of us own Antarctica. So if you divide 7.8 billion people into the you know, into the size of Antarctica, every single person on the planet has a responsibility for an area in Antarctica about the size of a football pitch. So we actually have, each of us, some icy real estate we need to protect at the bottom of the planet. I think that Antarctica has captured people's imagination, A, years and years and years ago, with the real explorers like Scott Amundsen, and Shackleton but one's got to remember in our own small way that when we walked the pole in the footsteps of Scott more people had stood on the moon than had walked the pole we were the first people to go overland on foot to the pole since Amundsen, Scott and Shackleton 70 odd years before we made that journey so I think that there was a historical link which people are sort of it's faded a bit. I don't think people are quite are so aware of that anymore. But I think that there's now an awful lot of emphasis on the threat of Antarctica to us. And there's a huge amount of interest right now in Western Antarctica and this giant glacier called the Thwaites Glacier, which can be a threat to us or well, not can be, will be, and probably is. And what is the, the nature of that threat? Well, there's an area, the Thwaites, giant, huge glacier. I mean, you know, we're talking about the scale of this is enormous. But what's happening is that definitely our oceans are warming. We know that. People have been talking about it for ages. But what's been happening is that as a warmer ocean goes underneath this glacier because a lot of the glacier is you know an ice shelf as well as ice on land right so an ice shelf is something floating on yeah, the sea a floating an ice shelf is something that's floating on the sea and then an ice cap is ice on land and this floating glacier the Thwaites glacier has had this warmer ocean underneath it and it's in the process of you know this is an area you know bigger than Texas, if that's possible, if you can imagine the size of this. And this thing, this area of ice is getting thinner and thinner and thinner underneath and will quite soon break off. That in itself doesn't raise sea level a huge amount because ice that's floating in, in water, just like a gin and tonic, if you have a piece of ice in it, doesn't raise the level of the glass. But what that's going to do is to have it that breaks off and then the ice that's on land which is a huge amount of ice can come into the ocean faster 
So this Thwaites Glacier is a, it really is the canary in, in the mine. It's speaking to us and it's saying, look, this is happening and scientists are focused on it very much at the moment. And it's not a question of if anymore, it's a question of when this is going to happen and the impact that will have on sea level. Not might have, will have. So that whole discussion is very stress-inducing. Yes. And almost, I think it leads many people to a sense of helplessness and hopelessness. What can be done and what should be done? I think that what's really important is that people do focus very much on the negative because it sells more. And especially young people who are possibly rather frustrated and angry with the state of our planet that my generation have left them, a lot of people very much focus on anger, frustration, fear, anxiety. We have to move the dial away from that because that doesn't get you anywhere. Anger doesn't get you anywhere. And what people like my son are doing are actually showing that solutions are possible. So first and foremost, we've got to show hope. I think secondly, that we, what we have to do is to say, look, as businesses, all of our businesses, you said this to me, Dan, you can either go one way or you can go the other way, but there is actually only one way to go. And that is to make your business well ahead of the game on being as good as it possibly can be on sustainability and to make sure that it's net zero and not producing too much carbon and not just doing it because it sounds good, but to really do that job. So business and industry have a responsibility to get going on it and to really do something. But I also believe that employees need to engage on this. They can't just say, Dan, hey, you know, NTT data doing a fantastic job which they are on ESG and we're doing all these really amazing things fine great they can't just say that what they've got to say is that's fantastic we need to support that but also what are we doing at home what are we doing with our lives on energy and our own carbon footprint I think it is terribly important that Action is what is going to take away our anxiety. Because if this isn't somebody else's problem, Dan. This is our problem and we can't pass the buck onto other people. So to reduce that element of fear, action is important. And can individuals matter? Your son, Barney, who we're going to speak to in a coming episode... But he had a, a statement that really struck me about a, a billion fish are more powerful than a hundred sharks. So business has to do what it can do. Government needs to do what it can do. But do individuals matter? Yes, individuals matter hugely. Because I think it's very easy for people to think, well, does it really make any difference if I recycle a plastic bottle? Or does it make any real difference if I use less fuel or turn down the thermostat in my house so it's not freezing cold in the middle of summer and you know maybe in winter rather than having it boiling hot I could wear a jacket inside the house when it's minus 10 outside and I'm wearing a t-shirt inside 
a lot of people think, well, can that really make a difference? Well, as one person, no. But millions of people doing that, yes, it can. And I think that that's the way we need to think, is that small things, lots of people together, not can, have to make a difference. And you're talking to somebody, and when you talk to Barney, you know, we've seen how hostile the environment can be. I am actually a climate change refugee already, because in training for the South Pole, I could no longer train in Northern California during the summer on my bicycle because there was too much smoke in the atmosphere from fires. So I've had to move to do altitude training to Colorado. That's because of climate. So I think that you know all of us have to realize that this is happening. Go and talk to people who just got slammed by Hurricane Ian on the east coast of the United States of America. Ask anybody anywhere whether climate is actually changing. It is. So the debate's over and we need to respond together, whether that's business or individuals, to that challenge and actually feel hopeful about it because we can do it. But we just have to realise that if we do the same, we get the same. And with that, it's now time for Cold Hard Facts. Antarctica's highest mountain is Vincent Massif. It's part of the Ellsworth mountain chain and rises more than 16,000 feet near the base of the Antarctic Peninsula. The largest mountain range is the Transantarctic Mountains, which bisect the continent and form one of the longest mountain ranges on the planet. In fact, the Transantarctics rival the Rocky Mountains in height, but in Antarctica, only the mountain peaks break through the ice, and these summits are one of the few areas not covered by ice. I want to thank Robert for stopping by and sharing his experiences and insights. There is more to this interview session, and we'll be sharing Robert's other commentary in future episodes, along with practical steps you can take to start your own journey toward sustainability. For now, thank you for listening, and I hope to see you next time on Undaunted with Robert Swan and NTT Data. Bye, friends.